Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. It's a big week, the week of the solstice, and here in the U.S., the week of Juneteenth and National Pollinator Week. In our ongoing exploration of who gardeners are, where gardeners are, and how they are growing our world, I'm so pleased to be back in conversation today with Day Shilkret, the founder, the ongoing creator, and recreator of Morning Altars. He is a human devoted to the pursuit of impermanent beauty and how that can become nourishment for life to continue. That sounds like being a gardener to me, Day. Welcome back to Cultivating Place. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, truly. Well, you and I were just looking at when we had last spoken, and it was 2017, and, and you sort of glibly <laughs> said, it's been a minute, but um, but the fact is it doesn't feel that long ago, and yet so much has happened. So, so much has changed. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I introduced you, but I would love to have you introduce yourself. H- how do you introduce yourself to a group of new people and and maybe if you could include in that the the role or the significance of plants in who you are and what you do my life would not be what it was without plants mm. so they are my teachers and neighbors and collaborators and they are my palette and they are my muse um, which is a, it's a lot of roles that they play in my life. Yeah. Um, and in terms of my own introduction, um, so much of myself comes from a relationship with place itself mm-hmm. and understanding who I am is in a constant dialogue and learning experience with the place itself. And so I'd say from that experience, I have found myself to be someone who works with words as an author and someone who works with, um, art as an artist um, and someone who works with meaning as a ritualist and uh, those three pieces uh, my connection with place my connection with creativity and my connection with ritual are really the three pillars of my work and purpose in the world which is in some ways to give our culture uh, actual skills actual mechanisms for healing and reconnection and renewal through those three things. Beautiful. And and every one of those pillars is embodied in in everything that you do. And mm-hmm. you know, but let's go back a little so that I don't jump us ahead, especially ahead of new listeners and um talk a little bit about where you were born and raised and who were the people and places and plants that grew you. And then I'll have you reintroduce the idea of what morning altars is and and comprises. But first, like, give us your groundwork, as it were. Sure. Um, I grew up in New York in uh, a place called Long Island. So an island right next to New York City. And I was born in the late 70s. And the place that I that I grew up in was in some ways very different than it is now. Actually, many places that I've lived in have become overdeveloped. But at the time, 
there were still uh, ranches and forests and uh, wild plants that were growing all around me at the time. We had two acres. And I spent, I'd say, a fair mix of time outdoors and indoors. Um, I came from a people who really lost their relationship with the land. and But in some ways, there was a living imprint, a memory, and a longing for that relationship. My father always used to say growing up that he, he should have um, chosen a career as a farmer. Um, and he never chose that, even though it was calling him. I, you know, one of the stories I tell early on was when I was five years old, I, I think a mix of my own sensitivity and, and empathy and love of being both outside and also help being a helper, mm-hmm. um, was I would, I would have a practice at the time where I would run out on the driveway after a rainstorm and save worms. <laughs> And this dis, dis, uh, deracinated worms, so worms that were in some ways uh, uprooted from their, their home. And I would scurry them onto a little leaf and run onto the front lawn, and I would plant little holes in the ground and, and help them back into the ground. And, and even more so, I would decorate the wormholes. And so in, in excavating my own memory of where my work kind of originated, some of the time I, I root it back there because in some ways I wanted their threshold of returning to place to be beautified and adorned. Um, and so I would create little like mandalas out of berries and twigs and branches and flower petals around their, their wormhole uh, reunion or their homecoming. And um <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And then and then the evolution of that, you know, it's funny, I had this tug of war between indoors and outdoors my entire life. You know, I worked as I actually um, my one of my first careers was working in the theater on Broadway as an assistant director, director. And so I would spend a lot of my time indoors. And then when I wasn't working in the theater, I would have these art residencies at these retreat centers in upstate New York, where I would spend my entire time outdoors. And I would be creating a permanent earth art in their, like on their forest paths. And there was this tug of war between, you know, working in the theater where sometimes you don't even see the sun, you know, you're in the theater all day long. Right. And then, and then those other times where I would be outside all day long. Um, and all of that changed and, and really came into enormous focus when in 2011, when my father died and in 2012, when I went through a major breakup in a relationship. And that led me on a path of a much deeper connection with the place that I lived. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember this beautiful Genesis story born of loss and grief and kind of becoming unmoored in life and uh, existentially in in many ways. And tell us the the Genesis story of Morning Altars. I'd say the Genesis story is founded on grief. And um, there was an enormous amount of loss. As you can imagine, losing a parent is rather destabilizing. Um, my father had cancer for four years, and then after a lot of fighting, the cancer died in 2011. And um, that was kind of one wing of the destabilizing bird. And the other wing was this breakup 
And um, I happened to have adopted my father's dog at the time, which was a lifesaver because as I said, this tug of war between indoors and outdoors was even alive back then. And the only reason that I actually got out of the house during those grieving times was because of Rudy, my little miniature schnauzer. And she you know, needed to go on these dog walks. And so we would go on these long dog walks and I would just be in my head kind of looking down at the ground at what was around and and also like really in my thoughts you know i mean the thing about grief is that not only does it disorient us but also it can destabilize our way of walking in the world i mean mm. i was really having trouble just getting to work or socializing with friends or just doing normal things but i had this responsibility of walking rudy and she would just be a normal dog you know sniffing and being curious at all of the things outside. And occasionally she'd come up to something like a crow feather, let's say. And I would look, I'd hold it up, I'd look at it, I'd pop out of my grief for a minute into some semblance of wonder. And then I would put it down and we'd continue on our way and I would just be in my mind again. One morning, as the story goes, we walked up to the top of this hill in a place called Wildcat Canyon in Richmond, California. And um, it was an early morning, the fog was rolling in, we crossed this confluence of paths. And at the tip of that path was a eucalyptus tree. And under the tree were these amber colored mushrooms that were glistening in the morning dew. And I was so taken by their beauty that I sat myself down under that tree. And I started to just first take in the mushrooms, how beautiful they were. Um, and then maybe it was that little five-year-old boy inside of me, but I started to rearrange the mushrooms into some shapes and I put them in a circle. And then around me was all the debris from the eucalyptus tree. And so I started to take eucalyptus buttons and I punctuated the mushrooms with them in another circle. And then I took brand, uh, bark from the tree and I made these, you know, another shape that looked like lightning rods. And an hour went by like it was a minute. And before me was this beautiful, symmetrical, almost perfect piece of art, impermanent, completely impermanent. I mean, within a minute, it was almost gone. It had blown away. But for a moment, it was before me and it gave me, in retrospect, a recognition of order because I had forgotten there was such a thing. Mm -hmm. And so it showed me literally at my feet that life could come back into balance. It could come back into some semblance of, of order and symmetry. And I needed that reminder. And so after making it, even after it blew away, I, I recognized something was there. And so I challenged myself to return to the same spot for 30 days and to keep collecting material and to keep making new pieces out of whatever I found on the forage on those dog walks. And 30 days came and, and went and it was the pinnacle of my day. I didn't want to stop. It was the, what was giving me life. It was giving me order. It was giving me a semblance of, of healing. Um, and so I kept on returning to that same spot and, and I was, I, I made those pieces there for many, for almost probably two years. And, and you want to hear something funny is I'm just remembering this right now. Um, I became known both by the humans that walked the path and, and sometimes even the animals, you know, it would recognize me cause I was just there every day right. under the same tree. <laughs> and, 
Um, and one time I went on, I think on a vacation or something with my family and I came back and in the very spot where I would sit and make these morning altars every day, uh, someone took the eucalyptus buttons and made a question mark. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. The, the, yeah. the universe was saying, where, yeah. where did you go? Yeah. Where are yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, I mean, and I remember this from the last time we spoke as well. There's this, there's this immediate visceral recognition for me as a gardener in what you were doing and why it, it spoke to you on such a cellular level and and the many like lessons and gifts you were you were practicing and and recreating and then letting go of every day and and the fact that that order in our world for better or worse absolutely includes both creation and destruction for for lack of a better word or or you know the reverse of creation, the uncreating and going back in chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And that that's part of the order and, you know, this constant exactly. like coming together and then coming apart is, um, but human. It, it's human. It's, it's very it's human. Just, it's human. It's also life. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is how, that is yeah. how your garden works yes. is that it grows, it reaches its fullness, it fruits, and then it dies. Yeah. And then it, it sits in dormancy. And then we're at that time right now. We just, in my culture, we celebrated a holiday yesterday actually called Tubishvat, which is mm -hmm. Hebrew. It identifies a, uh, a date in the calendar, which is, we refer to it as the birthday of the trees. Yeah. And it's a holiday that basically acknowledges that we're at the time of the year where the sap starts to rise again in the trees and life is returning to the plants. And it's it asks us, as I do in my work too, it says, look in, look outside to look inside. Yeah. Look at your external landscape to look at your internal landscape. And it asks us to, you know, to really look at what is rising now, what what needs to move, what's blocking that path of this of our own internal sap rising. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Day Shilkret is the founder and the ongoing creator of Morning Altars, a practice and a human devoted to the pursuit of impermanent beauty and how that can become nourishment for life to continue. In this week of the summer solstice here in the Northern Hemisphere, we will be right back for more with Day about marking and making meaning in this season of life. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the rich intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. The Conservancy's inaugural Garden Futures Summit is a two-day event that aims to sustain the remarkable passion in gardening today by presenting a selection of the most exciting ideas shaping the future of gardens. The summit will focus 
on three essential topics within contemporary gardening, environment, community, and culture. Taking place on Saturday, September 29th at the New York Botanical Garden and Sunday the 30th in gardens around the city, tickets are on sale now and information about the program is live. For all information and tickets, head over to gardenconservancy.org. Hey, it's Jennifer. Looking outside to look inside. I love when Day shared that insight. And don't we as gardeners know that this is a true story? You know, research is verifying more and more. I'm sure you've all read it or heard it. That experiencing wonder or experiencing awe is beneficial for us. It is recalibrating for us as we make our way in this world. And of course, we know this as gardeners. We get to experience it perhaps more than anybody. But just because we know it doesn't always mean that we remember it or remember to give it the time it needs. In this solstice season, I'm inviting you. I am asking you to please remember this experience of wonder and joy and awe. These are among the greatest reasons we return to the garden over and over again. The wonder of the light, the awe of the other lives all around us, the joyful feeling that we are beneficial contributors in this ecosystem of our places. So just like the sun gardeners, keep returning. We're back now to our conversation with Day Shilkret of Morning Altars, a practice of place, of attention, and of rituals rooted in nature, helping to embed memory and meaning in our lives, in and out of the garden. As we come back, Day shares more about the evolution of the Morning Altars practice and now mission. Yeah, I'd say, you know, the next step in the story is just acknowledging that as the practice grew, I really had to look back at what I was doing for my own sense of grieving and uh, uh, renewal. Um, And what I, in looking back, because I had to understand what I was doing in order to start teaching it and talking about it, I recognized that there was seven steps to the practice. Mm. Um, And each step was a way to acknowledge not just what I was doing, but also um, those three pillars that I spoke about at the beginning of Mm -hmm. our time together. Um, And maybe I'll just name each step because it might be helpful. Yeah. 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 So the first step is called wander and wonder. Um, And that step is really... Uh, it's the it's it's our capacity to see the world as if it was the first time again to be in awe to be in as rabbi joshua heschel said radical amazement Mm. at the ordinary Um, i think a lot of the time we take for granted the very things that are growing right outside our front door 
And so this step is very much about both seeing it again and letting ourselves get lost in it and get taken by it and not being what I call so destination addicted. Um, most of the time, most of us are, you know, we're going in straight lines, we're on a schedule, we, we think we need, we know where we're going. And this first step is really about wonder and wander. And those are sister words, um, getting unknowing where we are and connecting more into the place herself. And of course, that step is when we forage for the materials for the piece. Um, the second step, which you'll love, is called place. And, um, and it's very much about sitting in one place and allowing the place herself to wander around you rather than you wander around her and cultivating a relationship with all of your senses um, to connect with the place herself. And that is, each step is so profound. That's an equally as a profound step. The third and the fourth step are called clear and create. And this is the, we're moving into the creative practice. Um, and it's very much about uh, clearing a, almost like an earth canvas on the ground and creating your altar, which I really these days call them maps of meaning. Um, each piece I've made, and I've made thousands, are, yes, they're symmetrical. They look a lot like their shapes and patterns. Um, and there's a lot in that step I learn about my own creativity, um, how I lean, how I must lean into possibility and novelty when I'm creating and play. It's a step around play and just letting myself explore and letting my imagination lead. Um, but the, the reason I call them maps of meaning is because the fifth step is called gift. And this is what transforms it from a art practice to a ritual practice. Um, because everything I've ever made, they all carry symbolism and meaning to them. Um, a really quick story that kind of exhibits what I'm talking about is I, I tend to teach this to many communities around the world. And um, I go every summer to a very famous cemetery in Minneapolis. Um, and I do a workshop for grieving families. And I teach them the seven steps. And, um, and at the end of the workshop, we go and do an art tour, kind of like a ritual, ritualized art tour. And we go witness each person, what they made, why they made it. Um, we get to witness each other. And um, because it was a, a workshop for grieving families, there were a lot of kids. And as soon as we started that last part of the workshop, this five-year-old boy grabs my hand and he's, he asks if we can start with what he made. And so I motioned to the crowd, come with me, we're gonna start with this boy. And he, we go to his piece and he, he points down and he said, um, this is my morning altar. And he said, what do you notice? And we're looking at it and we look down and there's seven leaves and there's seven berries and there's seven stones. And we said, we noticed that there's a lot of sevens and he says, yeah, because my brother was seven when he died. And we all just took that moment in that this boy in five, as five years old was remembering his brother through numbers, like honoring his brother the, day, the age he was when he died. And then, of course, there was even more intricacy in the piece. It really told the story of this, this boy's love for his brother. 
um, through shapes and colors and textures and just ways that he probably couldn't express himself in words, but in through the piece, it was meaningful and a way for him to remember. Um, and then the last two steps are share, which is about you know the the way that the 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 meaning ripples out into the world. And the last step, which you know to me is the most important, is um, called letting go. And it's the impermanent step. It's really about stepping away and letting the peace return to, as you said, disorder or chaos. Um, and and really, to be honest with you, that I've been talking, you know, I've, for years I've been talking about them as steps. But really, what's more true is that these are this is a circle or right. a spiral. Yeah, yeah. Because the seventh step leads immediately to the first. Mm. Um, like they're so rings, those, maybe they're rings. Yeah, yeah. they're rings. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, this is um, this is the steps that I teach uh, both in my workshops and and specifically in my teacher training, which you know each one could be its own course. I could teach each one for months. I mean, they're yeah. all you know sitting with the second step place. I mean, that could be in itself just its own deep teaching, a lifelong teaching. Right. So. Well, and this is the nature of this kind of practice is that it is not a one and done, you learned it all, good job you. It is exactly. uh, that we it's never, we never know it all. And there's always more to learn. And going back to that ring or, or that cycle or stage phase, something um, versus step uh, it makes so much more kind of sense to me at my age and knowing that, you know, the lessons that I had to learn when I was five and seven and 12 and 30 and 40 and 50, they're all the same. They're all the yeah. same lessons, Dave, but yeah. I have to learn them <laughs> again in these new ways at this new time because yeah. it's different. And that's right. Um, and that's you know those are those are also the gifts of of the garden and being in practice and relationship with these cycles and seasons and phases of lives. And that's the key word for my work is it's relational. Mm. Every every step is really about cultivating a different and deeper relationship with each piece. Mm. And like it like it's true with your partner or your children or your best friend as soon as you think you know who they are, mm -hmm. you stop paying attention to the, who they actually are. You stop being curious. Yeah. And the practice is in many ways, unknowing who you think you're in relationship with and practicing a certain honed curiosity to that being, whether it's a human or someone greater than human, an animal, a plant, et cetera. And that is that is the best relational advice I can give, which is honing a, your skills of curiosity and wonder and praise and admiration and respect. Mm. All relational. All relational and all yeah. such valuable skills, tools, practices, no, no matter what we're relating to, right? Like whether, I, I mean, I'm thinking about me in my own work, trying to grow mm -hmm. with that curiosity or in my own garden being like, you know, that tree is now 10 feet taller and it's shading differently here. And right. what does that mean in this space? And, and it's, um, and God, we forget, we forget these tools so quickly day. 
<clears throat> yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's human to forget. Hmm. And that's why we have, you know, the, the most recent book I wrote, Hello, Goodbye. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's really a, it's a book on rituals, but it's really a book on remembering mechanisms to remember, because that is what rituals are, is they help us remember. And, and so when we forget, as you just said, which is very normal and very human, we do need those daily and annual rituals that help us to remember both as individuals and also as a culture. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I want to, okay. So I want to move into hello, goodbye, and then into, uh, you know, how you are moving this out into the world with the school, with training others to do this work. But I want to, I want to access that through this idea of not always referring to them as altars, but talking about them as maps of meaning. And I want to, yeah. I want you to kind of explore that that word choice for us because I think one of the great gifts of of uh, expressing and exploring either of these methods, gardening or making morning altars, which I see as very related activities. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think in so many ways in our world, one of the things that these these activities and relationships bring to our lives is a renewed sense of of spiritual meaning and ritual that we have lost in this kind of post-organized religion world for many of us, or or if we're still in a, an organized religion, which many of us are, it may not still have that same grounding that we we want we're longing for Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean i think that we're we're using the word meaning a lot and i think i as an author and i love words and especially if you read my writing you'll notice i love etymology the most um because etymology words are like plants in a way Um, And like people, they travel through time and through space Mm -hmm. and they change Mm. as they do, like everything does, you know, and a culture, my own people, my own ancestors, as they moved through different places, they changed. They took on different clothing. They took on different foods. They took on their language even changed, deeply impacted by the different places. And the etymology of the word meaning which we use nowadays in a certain way, actually the the origin of the word means a way to remember. And there, it's actually, when something is meaningful, it's speaking about its capacity to help you remember what's important. And the thing about meaning is that it has to be made. You can make it, it's very creative. It, in a way, it just takes us turning towards whatever we want to be meaningful and making it so. There's a, uh, there's a um, ethnographer by the name of Arnold Van Genep, and um, he wrote the book uh, Rites of Passage, a classic from the last century, and he, he coined a phrase called pivoting towards the sacred. And this is a phrase that I really resonate with, which is... Um, Anything can be made meaningful and sacred. It's just about us turning towards it and acknowledging that it is so. And, you know, to me, that's, that's really the work of, of in some ways, stepping out of our 
objectified mindset that this that the dominant overculture that we live in is so much perpetuating around the world, which is you know exploitation and objectification and you know taking endlessly. And in some ways, this mindset to me is so relational. It's it's basically saying, you know, if like if we start to turn towards everything the plants, the birds, the soil, the worms, the clouds, the sky, the season, the shadows, the, you know, everything. And we acknowledge its meaning, its purpose, its place in the scheme of things. Then we find ourselves and our sense of belonging inside of that schema. And so, you know, that is the practice really. And that is the mechanism when, when a culture or a people or a person has a ritual, that's the landscape. That is the, per, that's like, that is what that ritual is attempting to achieve is to create meaning and memory. One of the ways in this new book I talk about ritual is that it's nourishment for memory. It's food for memory. <laughs> I love it. Um, because it doesn't, we have to, in some ways, create it like we would a meal you know it's yeah. the lunch doesn't just make itself <laughs> i mean <laughs> you have to make it yeah and then you eat it and meaning is the same way it doesn't necessarily just make itself even the things that were once meaningful for some reason i'm thinking in this country we have like memorial day you know most people don't know what that means what are we remembering on this day? You know, it's, it's lost its meaning. And so we have to keep making the things that matter meaningful. And that takes a practice. That takes a willingness to do it over and over again, sometimes daily, sometimes annually, and sometimes from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So give us some examples of this, because this is what the book, Hello, Goodbye is all about. It is about crafting, creating, participating with others in in developing rituals that serve who we are, where we are right now, um, in the face of many historic rituals that we might have uh, followed as children or our previous generations followed through the course of, in most cases, organized religion, um, or, you know, sometimes cultural holidays like you know, Christmas is essentially a, in many ways, a cultural holiday. You are asking people to take a very active and considered role in ritualizing moments of their life in order to embed this meaning and um, and celebrate this meaning that you're making. Yeah, and I think it's important, you know, because of who I'm talking to, both you and your beautiful audience, I think it's really important to acknowledge place in the conversation. Yeah. Um, because, you know, in the introduction of my book, place is actually a very important part of me talking about ritual. Um, because basically how I start off the second section of the introduction is, you know, if my people actually lived in the places that they did and and they spoke the languages that they did and they observed they they were in the seasonal rhythms as they were and they made the foods that they did and they sang the songs that they did and you know they lived with one another um this book that i wrote would be completely unnecessary 
And so the book itself is not a consequence of things working out for us in the West. It's actually a result of things going astray. And, um, and so in some ways, you know, and, and my, in my own culture, by the way, we have a, a lot of different holidays and we're still practicing these rituals thousands of years later, right. but they don't make a lot of sense because the ritual is connected to the place our ancestors once lived. I'm thinking, for instance, in my Jewish tradition, we have a holiday called Sukkot, which is a holiday where we actually take three branches of our ancestral lands trees, the willow, the palm tree, and the myrtle. And we hold this fruit that we call an etrog and we shake it in the in the eight directions in order to cause the rain to fall. That's like our original intention for this, these ritual objects and that ritual. But last year I was living in Portland, Oregon, <laughs> and it was raining every day for nine months straight. And the fact that I was shaking this, these branches and doing this ritual to call the rains forth made zero sense to me. You know, it really didn't. And so there's a, in some ways, ritual, they, they are traditional, but they also need to be renewed. Yeah. They need to be reimagined. Mm -hmm. And they have to be, we have to root them back into the places that we live. And they have to, in some ways, be reimagined and, and informed by those places, by how the place, what is the place experiencing? What is the, the contours of the landscape of the place? What is the language the place is speaking? Is it going through a drought? Is it going through a rainy season? What is it growing? What are the foods produced by the place? In some ways, the ritual needs to be localized again and not made into a universal, um, you know, kind of catch-all thing, if that makes sense. This is exactly yeah. true of gardening, is that it, it moved to this place of commodification and a status symbol objectification, and it lost its place. Mm. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're in conversation this week with Day Shilkret, an artist, an author, a teacher, and a placemaker. He is the founder and ongoing creator of the practice known as Morning Altars. Day is a human devoted to the pursuit of impermanent beauty and how that can become nourishment for life. In this week of the summer solstice in the Northern Hemisphere, we'll be right back for more with Day about making and marking meaning in this solstice season. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. You know, maybe that's what garden tours are actually about at their very best. Not about showing off, not about acquiring or collecting great ideas, or at least not just about these things. Maybe it's also about simply witnessing one another, the way we each individually ritualize and make meaning in the world through our gardens. This is a big week 
Here in the U.S., we recognized Juneteenth, which we have been officially recognizing since only 2021. But good job us on getting there. And around the world, countries are marking National Pollinator Week. And globally, no matter who you are or where you live, it is the solstice. There's so much we need to learn, to relearn, or continue recognizing in our world. Maybe as a part of your summer fun, add slow down and really take the time to do exactly that. Take time to slow down, to recognize, to witness. And maybe this is a joyful recognition and remembering of what summer vacation is all about. Enjoy, gardeners. We're back now to our conversation with Day Shilkret of Morning Altars, a practice of place, of attention, and of rituals rooted in nature, helping to embed memory and meaning in our lives. As we come back, Day begins by reading us a section from his book, Hello, Goodbye, 75 Rituals for Times of Loss, Celebration, and Change. Sounds like the season of the summer solstice. Yeah, I'm actually looking at my book right now, and there's a paragraph in here I'd love to read because Please it's do. actually it's it's like I I wrote it for this moment. Okay, <laughs> um, it's the end of a certain section in the introduction, and it says any culture worth a dime understands that memory, both personal and collective, is not static but alive and changing and therefore must be maintained and tended to like a living garden. Mm. Rituals are ways we can replant the seeds of our memory in the ground of our everyday life, our waking, our eating, our sleeping, and especially our losses and celebrations so that our memory might flower again. No matter the culture employing a ritual, it carries a similar cadence, a willingness to remember together again after again, season after season, year after year, and especially as my people say, Lador Vador, from generation to generation. This is how we can be responsible descendants by keeping our collective memory alive. And really what I love about rereading my own words right now is that there's a real, a real deep it's not even a metaphor. It is, it, it, they're like sharing the, the same language and the same landscape of ritual and gardening. Yeah. Yeah. The same, the same function, the same purpose, the same attentiveness, the same sensitivity, the same way of relating. Um, you know, it's, it is, it's not keeping things static. It's not keeping things, you know, hoarded. It's not bottling things up. It's, it's really planting it over and over again and tending to it tending to the, that relationship, as I said, daily, yearly, generationally. And one of the things I also love about the work and the this this newest book in, in your line of work um, is this idea of it it being a vessel to to hold and remember and then let go and allow to to regrow in a different way, perhaps. Um, all 
all manner of memory, not just grief, not just memorial, but celebration and, and, you know, all of those moments in life that we, that we hold as important. And they include births and deaths, weddings, and perhaps divorces, um, you know, anything by which we, we measure the quality of our lives. Yeah, exactly. And in some ways, reconnecting our lives back into the rhythms and ways of the places that we live. Mm -hmm. And and in that attempt, continuing to learn and change and adjust and, um, and reflect and remember who we are, where we are, what our purpose is, all of those things. Um, I'm looking actually, I have the book in front of me right now where I just read from, and I'm, I actually just opened up this page to honor the summer solstice, um, as a ritual. And I'm looking at the ritual I wrote a few years ago, and it's really a ritual of acknowledging what's happening in, on the land, um, which is summertime, of course, is a time of fruiting. And, um, and the ritual itself, I'm, I called it the bearing fruit ritual. Mm-hmm. And it asks the person doing it to take three, four, um, I think it's three fruits. One that is unripe, one that is perfectly ripe, and one that's overripe. And the ritual is because rituals often use symbols, they use symbolic action. Mm-hmm. Um, so the it's it's taking what's happening, let's say in your garden, and in some ways creating symbolic relationship with it, so that it reaches the depths of your psyche. That is kind of the the purpose. And in each one of these fruits, you hold them up. The ripe fruit. I'm sorry, the uh, unripe fruit. And I I have a bunch of questions to ask yourself um, about your own life at that time, at the summer solstice time. And some of the questions are, you know, what ideas almost materialized but didn't? This is the unripe fruit. What relationships seemed promising and then fizzled? What projects are you still holding out for but are looking less and less likely? Like it's an, it's an acknowledgement of what almost happened but didn't, the unripe fruit. The ripe fruit, the questions are, what did you achieve since the winter? What relationships are thriving right now? What are your successes lately? It's really acknowledging, you know, what's actually come into being. Um, And then the questions for the overripe is what has come into your life and what is left? What old relationships need to be released and composted? Where have you made a mess? You know, it's really asking you to like look at the parts that are, you know, needing to be put down and let go. And anyway, it's playing with, it's using the earth and the season as a way of creating more meaning. Right. And I think it is such a perfect call to us as gardeners in these times to engage at this level of you know, I, I, you think of Robin Wall Kimmerer and her call uh-huh. to returning to this sense of reciprocity. And and this is very much a an engaging with both reverence, but also responsibility and celebration, um, but also responsibility and um, and knowing. Um, 
And that word is an amazing word. I mean, responsibility is our ability to respond. Right. And our ability to respond means actually looking at what's happening, right? Yeah. And not turning away from it, but looking at what's happening seasonally or daily or culturally or, you know, economically or familially or whatever. And in some ways, the responsibility is to not just turn towards it, but to acknowledge its purpose and its meaning and to find some way to give back from that place and to transform our own lives back into something that's life-giving. And that is really the purpose of ritual is it helps us to remember our purpose and place in the world. I love that. So tell us about your school, because I think it includes a couple of different branches, one of which is to, to hold um, these kinds of uh, ritual teachings or gatherings, but it is also to teach other people to teach this kind of work and um, an engaged meaning-making day. Yeah, I would say that we are in uncertain times. I'll start there. Yeah. Things are changing very quickly. Technology is making that so. Climate change is making that so. You know, the pandemic has made that so. And we need really skillful ways as people and as a culture to respond to the times that we're in. From where I stand and my the lane that I have that I'm continuing to advocate from is that we need all of us need better ways of relating and being connected to nature. That's number one. Nature is the ultimate teacher, um, teaching us how to how to be in relationship with change. Essentially, um, the second way of responding to these times is creativity and potential and possibility, and learning how to um, make something without knowing where you're going. Um, and so I think in addition to our capacity to connect with nature, to be really in touch with our own sense of creativity, it doesn't, I don't mean art, by the way, I mean, being creative in the face of uncertainty, that could be being creative in your business or being creative in your family, being creative, your car breaks down. What is the creative choice there? Um, but it's a muscle. And the last one, as I said, is meaning. Um, making meaning and ritualizing and remembering. And so these are the three pillars of the school that I teach, the training. And we're using this practice, not necessarily, yes, to get good at the practice itself, but we're using the practice in order to become um, more uh, adaptable humans so that we can respond to the change that's happening in our families or our communities or our businesses or really the, the world. And, and so this is a, a nine month school that I have been running now. We're gonna be going on our third cohort come the fall. And there have been, I think we have over 15 countries that have been represented in the school. And folks are, taking this training both to become more skillful in these um, 
and these tools for their own lives, for sure. Uh, but so many are working in communities and businesses in their local places, and they want to bring these skill sets back to the people that they that they um, impact. And so we have prison psychologists, we have art therapists, we have clergy, we have kindergarten teachers. Mm -hmm. We have so many different people that are that are bringing this practice back to the people that they work with and helping, for instance, prisoners become more in touch with nature or more in touch with change. Um, they're helping, you know, we have death doulas that are helping grieving families uh, remember their beloveds by cultivating a nature connection practice or by uh, cultivating an impermanence practice. We're, we have kindergarten teachers that are helping children be more creative and more innovative and also more in touch with the places that they live. And so we have so many people that are bringing this and, and changing it into the ways that they need to impact the communities that they serve, which is just such a gift. Such a gift, such a green and growing and generative gift day. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. It's it's remarkable. Sometimes I say that it's not really a training. It's like earth church. <laughs> it's exactly like that. And I'm not a teacher. I'm a, more of a preacher. Yeah. You know, some of the experiences, can I just share with you Please. like one, one of these? Okay. Um, we just came off of a weekend together where we focused on the creative act creating and um, I basically teach for half an hour and then we design these experiences for them to go out and, and have outside where they live, not on the screen, but outside in their gardens and their backyards, et cetera. And, um, and two of the, the design pieces that we just did were just so amazing. They came back so enlivened. One of them was teaching them the, it was called playing with possibility, the design. And we asked them to make a piece of art out of nature. Um, but we gave them 45 minutes only to use three materials. Let's say it's leaves, flowers, and berries. And we asked them in those 45 minutes to make four more pieces of art out of the same exact material. And so they got to create four different pieces and, and in some ways practice acknowledging, recognizing that they don't have to be stuck in creating a certain thing. Mm -hmm that they can play with new possibilities out of the same material. And this is exercising a muscle inside of all of us that says that we can be imaginative and creative when we think we're stuck, when we think we, you know, we're stuck with the same material or the same job or the same partnership or whatever. We can play with what's possible. The other thing we had them do, which is just so delicious, is we had all of them buy cloth tarps and bags of soil, garden topsoil. Mm -hmm. And we had, we were, I was teaching them about play and why it atrophies in today's culture. Yeah. Why are we so reluctant to play like we did as a kid? And what are the things that we're missing from not playing and not letting ourselves just explore and fail and create just to create because for the love of it. And so we had them, we created what we called an earth box, which is kind of influenced by a sandbox. Right. And we had them dump the soil and for an hour, we had them just play in the earth, make whatever they want, get as dirty as they want, play, play, play. But we also had them also track when their mind was telling them 
to stop playing? What are the thoughts that you have that tell you it's, you know, it's enough or, you know, it's that pull us outside of the play. And my students came back with so much insight around both their love of playing and also the parts of them that grew up and that says that, you know, it shouldn't be and they should focus on something more serious. Right. And it contending with those that mindset and really exercising that muscle for play and it's nature that really lets us remember that that original boy and girl who is the teacher of the some of these skills and that we need to access in order to grow into adaptable, healthy, alive humans. Mm. Thank you. It's interesting because um, you've gotten me thinking a lot about my own word choices. And I wrote a a sort of winter solstice thank you note to the the many people who support and help the program. And I, I explained to them or I shared with them that the program had been downloaded more than a million times last year and that the most listened to episodes were those in which they were stories of people as really powerful partners supporting biodiversity in our world. But mm. a very close second were those episodes that highlighted our gardens as sacred spaces where we engage mm. with the universal creative force and yeah. and we make greater meaning in our lives when we... Um, enter these spaces with that mindset. And um, when you were talking about making meaning, this came back to me. And, and I mm. I think it is, it is an, a muscle that people are very, very excited and determined to, uh, to exercise in these times. This is why I'm, I'm interested in what I'm calling a ritual renaissance. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been such fun to speak with you again, (laughs) Day. It is such an honor, and I'm just so grateful, A, to be invited back, and B, for all the amazing work that you're doing to help so many people connect back into the places that they live. Day Shilkred is an artist, an author, a teacher, and a placemaker. He is the founder and ongoing creator of the practice known as Morning Altars. Join us again next week when, in honor of the 4th of July, we're in conversation with the Red Bud Resource Group, working to improve public health outcomes for Native American communities through education, research, and community partnership, specifically by getting Native-developed curriculum into schools and teaching individuals, organizations, and communities how to authentically go beyond land acknowledgments. That's next week. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you for your generosity in this listener-supported podcast program. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and the Garden Conservancy. 
The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communications intern Sheila Stern. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machukta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. 